All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, welcome back to Making the Argument and we've got uh, something special for you today. We're actually going to I'm going to put our uh, resident historian and political prognosticator in the uh, driver's seat for a good part of this episode because we're going to talk about early election predictions coming up for the midterms and who better do that than Christian. So we're going to go ahead and go over that. We're going to talk a little bit too about a very important race in Wyoming. That's right. All of our buddy Liz Cheney should she win? Does she deserve to be sent back to Congress by the great people of Wyoming? And why would they do that to us? All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. Don't forget, if you'd like to discuss the topic of today's episode with us, you can join us on Volley at the link in the description of this podcast. We thank you for joining us. And if you learned something new today, are better prepared to have a conversation about this topic with friends or family. I hope you'll let us know in the YouTube comment section and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All right, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, an okay person. My beautiful wife, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everyone. And resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Hello. And finally, last but not least, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, I'm the one that doesn't like Central Bank. Don't you dare cut me off. Don't you dare cut me off. Oh, wow. I got to get your entire name thing out there before you start to speak. <laughs> Otherwise, someone might think you do like central banking. What if I was going to say, what are you going to do when one day he says, you know, actually, I've been doing some reading of Paul Krugman, and I decided to change my mind on that. I like central banking now. You know that Alexander Hamilton guy? He was okay. Screw you, Aaron Burr. <laughs> Never. Go ahead. What were we going to say? Now, oh, now I, I was just going to say that I'm looking forward to all the wisdom that Christian is going to share with us today. Well, <laughs> the first thing, the first thing I want to get into, because I know this is it, like, you might not know this about Christian, huge Liz Cheney fan. Um, I mean, I, do you still have the tattoo? That's, That's an act of defamation right there. <laughs> Huge Liz Cheney fan. Oh, my Cute gosh. Cute lawsuit. <laughs> You're going to – I I feel like I'm, like, now the, the one Republican that's on The View or, or, or something. Like, everybody's going to start hating on me. No, I – for the record, I – do not support Liz Cheney. <laughs> well, let, let's start. Let's start there because that that isn't interesting. Because most most of this episode, we're going to talk about the general election. Uh, but we've already seen we've already seen a lot of Republican incumbents, especially the ones that kind of went with the whole vote for impeachment thing. I think one of them kept their seat, but like Joe Kent won in Washington. There was others that got you know trounced. But um, it, Liz it was, Cheney's the big race to watch. Uh, Dan Newhouse was, to the best of my knowledge, like one of the only Republicans that voted for impeachment that, no. that won his primary. He barely won. Um, well, and we're going to find out later today what happened in Wyoming. Like this should go out and then we'll find out about Wyoming. Yeah. Later, later in the day, probably what about eight o'clock. It should be. I mean, Western if time. the polls are accurate, 
Yeah. And we might get into this later in this episode. Yeah. If the polls are accurate, there's no guarantee that they are. But if they are in this case, I mean, we should know within 15 minutes of the polls closing that Liz has yeah. lost. Yeah. If they're accurate. I mean, the polling right now shows that she should be absolutely wiped you know, off the face of the earth in this primary. And and the thing that's so fascinating is the media who, who've like descended on Wyoming, they've only gone to one place in, in Wyoming. They've gone to Jackson Hole. No. That's it. For, for those at home watching, Jackson <laughs> Hole is the most left-wing place in Wyoming. Yeah. Like, like the state of Wyoming is overwhelmingly Republican. Like, if you're not getting like 65% of the vote as a Republican in Wyoming, you're having a really bad night. Isn't that where all the Silicon Valley, and, like, people go? They're like, I'm going to yes, get a ranch yeah. in Wyoming. And yeah. then they go to Jackson, Jackson Hole. Jackson Hole is where all of the California leftists have moved to Wyoming. So, like, Teton County, which is where Jackson is, is is like the only part of Wyoming that's like a left wing. Like it's, it's one of the only counties that like routinely votes for Democrats in a state that again, is like close to 70% Republican. And so like when you break down like the primary electorate in a traditional Republican primary in Wyoming, T Jackson, that area in general accounts for something like 3% of all the Republican votes statewide. And yet that's the only place that the media goes to, to ask people about how they're voting in the Republican primary. Because that's probably going to be the only place in the entire state that's actually going to vote for Liz Cheney. Well, Kevin Costner. Yeah. Kevin Costner supports I, Liz I still Cheney. think Liz yeah. Cheney thought she was getting John Dutton's endorsement. It's like, right. no, it's, it's Kevin Costner. No, it's Kevin we, Costner. Like John, we like John Dutton. We don't And we know how much of a Republican Costner. he is, right? I oh, mean, yeah, it, yeah. Kevin Costner is just the yeah, gold standard for conservative philosophy. So, like... I, I mean, it's kind of easy to bash Liz Cheney right now for obvious reasons, but I feel like that... That when she loses tomorrow, and I will be floored if she if she somehow pulls it off. Like, it's not impossible, but, I mean, because polling has been wrong before. I was talking to um, Nick and Tina right before the show began about how our own primary many, many years ago in Virginia's 7th District where Eric Kenner lost to Dave Brad, and that was a stunning nationwide upset. The, the polling showed right before that primary that Eric Cantor was supposed to win in a landslide. Now, it's a totally different set of circumstances because Liz Cheney is the incumbent in this case. And so, if anything else, the polling in many ways should theoretically overstate her support because she's the incumbent. Well, can you explain why polling is seems to be less accurate now than it used to be? I think there's, oh man, we could do a whole episode on that, but to just condense that. I think that what you're seeing right now is the the political polarization in this country is arguably at its highest point since the 1880s or 1870s. Um, and so what I mean by that, is, and, and in many ways, it's actually more dangerous than it was in the 1880s and 1870s because the- Why is that? Well, party polarization was extremely high in the post-Civil War era, like very, very high. I mean, the, the, everybody was voting straight ticket. Their elections were always being decided by like one or two points. I mean, Grover Cleveland's three elections, he won two of them and he lost one of them. And every single one of them were were by very small margins. And, um, and in the 1880 presidential election, that was like one of the closest elections ever. It was between um, uh, Winfield Scott Hancock, who was the Democratic nominee. You might have heard of him. He was uh, one of the um, generals that was the hero at Gettysburg. Or for the Union Army. So it's actually kind of interesting because he was the Democratic nominee, but he was a Union general in the Civil War, which lent him a lot of credibility. But despite all of those strengths, he still lost the election because the Republicans had a built-in advantage at the time in the post-Civil War era. People weren't necessarily in the North wanting to vote for the Democrats because they viewed them as the party of secession and slavery and stuff like that. But 
Winfield Scott Hancock didn't have any of those liabilities because he was a union general that was a war right. hero. And that election was was kind of like the the peak of the political polarization of the era. And despite the fact that he was a union war general, he was still attacked as being a member of the party of slavery and secession. And there wasn't really anything he could do about it, even though he had all these credentials to suggest otherwise. Um, but the thing is, is that that was just partisan identification. It was just people waving a flag, a red right. or blue flag, riding the elephant around or riding the donkey around. If you actually look at the at, at the the party platforms of the time, there was a lot of overlap between Democrats and Republicans. There was a lot that they mm. agreed on. There was also a lot that they disagreed on, but but there was a substantial overlap between the two, which is why you could get a situation where somebody like myself, I mean, I would have voted for Grover Cleveland three times in a row because Grover Cleveland was one of the most conservative presidents this country ever had and okay. he understood economics. But at the same token, within the same generation, I would have also voted for Calvin Coolidge, who's from a different party. Right. And so if you're looking at it from an ideological standpoint, people like ourselves or people like our audience, they would have been flip-flopping back and forth between the two parties from an ideological standpoint. But at the time, nobody was doing that. Everybody was just voting. You know, you were Democrat, so you were always voting Democrat. Or you were Republican, you were already always voting Republican. Didn't matter what the ideology was. And so that's why I'm saying that today is in many ways more dangerous because it's it's party polarization is at an all-time high, but so is ideological polarization. Mm -hmm. And that's what was missing in the 1880s, 1870s, 1890s mm -hmm. was that ideological cohesion within the parties. The parties were very fluid at the time, and they're not now. Interesting. Okay. And so that's that's a bit of history lesson for you there. Um, but the, the polling, to get back to Tina's original question, the polling has been really bad lately, like like historically bad, like Dewey defeats Do uh, tr you know Truman type bad. I've got a question about that. Do you think that the fact that we no longer operate off of landlines typically in this country and... Uh, we all have caller ID and we can see when it's a political call and we mm -hmm. avoid those calls. Do you, how do you think that affects uh, the polling? Because the folks that have landlines now are, I mean, slim, slim. There's yeah, not a there's lot. There's not a lot at all. And, um, and most people do not answer anything that says it could be a political call. And that's so, important because landlines would allow the person conducting the poll to know for a fact that they are polling someone within a certain district. Right. So it's true that that could be influencing things, but I don't, I think that, and I've heard people bring this up before, but I think that's a little bit overstated and here's why. Because if it's affecting things, it's affecting it across the board. Because if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're probably equally as likely to not pick up a call from somebody randomly that's calling you. So if anything else, that's making it maybe more difficult to just get names. But I don't necessarily think that that's skewing the polling one direction or the other. It's just probably making it more difficult to actually complete a poll because so people are less likely to answer. it's harder to get answer. a pool of voters to answer the phone. Yes, but that doesn't mean that the pool that is answering is, is inherently more left-wing or right-wing because they're more likely to pick up a call from a stranger. But what you've seen in polling starting in 2016 is that Nationwide polling is just categorically left-wing biased. Like, like the polling in 2016 showed that Donald Trump should have lost. Like, you, you, I mean, the betting odds, the markets, the 538 forecast, 
the New York Times, I remember it was, what was it? It was like either the Huffington Post or the New York Times had their forecast the day before the election. And they said that Hillary Clinton had like a 98% chance of winning. It's the one you got wrong, Christian. And it's the, it's I like actually the got only that election one wrong. you got wrong. Yeah. And, but you know what? I, I, I changed, I did get it wrong. I did think that Hillary Clinton would win in 2016, but that's because at the time I was operating on the same exact you know, thesis assumption that had well, let, guided get, me. Let's get to that because you've actually, you've actually designed, you've actually designed a new kind of um, very, gosh, I'm trying to think of the way to uh, put it. Model? Um, a model. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Gosh, dang. I can't believe that took me so long. Well, I didn't get it all. You actually have to tell me, but um, <laughs> no, but you, you designed a new model because a lot of the things that people were going off of, and, and this is one of those, this is something that whenever you have this transition, Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you see this sometimes with significant demographic shifts, you see this with, uh, kind of changes in culture, um, between, you know, urban, rural, suburban, things like that. Um, there, there can be, there can be a period of time where all the major polling networks are essentially, they're going with what they've done for the last 20 to 30 years because it's tried and it's true and it's works. And then all of a sudden it doesn't work. Yeah. So like, why is it? That or why do you think that a lot of the major polling agents out there are, are not picking up on things that they need to in order to give better predictions of election outcomes? So the first, there's a couple reasons. I think the biggest one that really like shattered the pre-existing notion of like polling going into 2016 and arguably going into 2020, but a lot of polling firms were starting to correct for it going into 2020, but they didn't correct for it enough because we can get into this. 2020, the polling was catastrophic. It was arguably worse than 2016. The reason everybody forgets about it, though, is because technically they got it right. The polling said that Biden would win and he won. So therefore, oh, there were no problems, right? They totally got it right. Yeah, except when you look at like the margins, like the, the polling in 2020, all of these all of these organizations were saying like Biden's going to win by like seven or eight points and he's going to win Texas and Florida and Ohio and Iowa. And he lost all those states. He barely won by the skin. People forget this. He barely won. He won by something like 50,000 votes across three or four states. You, 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 you change like a fraction of a percentage point in Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, and Wisconsin or some combination of those, yeah. and the, the result would have gone differently. And But because technically the polling got it right, people kind of forget that the, the polling in 2020 was, was like monumentally flawed. Um, and I think a big reason why is because they, they, they left out things like education level. So historically that played very little role in determining your, your party identification. Um, it used to be in the trend line was going all the way until basically 2012 that the United States was becoming more and more racially polarized politically. Whites were Republicans, non-whites were Democrats, and it was simple as that. And that's the direction that people thought that we were moving across the board. Like, and that's why Democrats kept talking about how like we have the coalition of the ascendant as the country becomes less white, the country will become more Democrat. And I'm sorry, but that, that thesis has just been shattered. Um, so, I that, mean, so that was one, it was the whole, it, it was based off this idea that based off of your racial demographics, that was one of the leading ways to determine how you would vote. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that was one problem. What's another one? Uh, the, edu the, education. the education thing was really the big thing because that is now increasing. So racial polarization is decreasing over time now, which is like 
10 years ago, that would have blown people's minds. And education polarization, whether or not you have a college degree or a higher degree than that, is increasingly becoming more. Now, now again, race is still higher than education in terms of its prioritization, but the gap between those two is shrinking over time. And you see this in um, two places more than anywhere else. You see it in the Miami-Dade metro area, and you see it in South Texas. Um, so Miami-Dade, largest county in Florida, um, was it voted like close to like two to one for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And people were saying, well, it makes sense because Miami-Dade is majority minority county. Whites are only something like 30-something percent of Miami's population. It's It's got a very large Hispanic population, very large um, black population. And, you know, it's just a safe and it's an urban area. It's a safe Democrat county. You know, the next it's only going to be, you know, higher Democratic margins from here on out. And then 2020 came around and Donald Trump almost won Miami-Dade County. Wow. Um, he lost it by like six points. And, and two, four years before, he had lost it by like almost a two to one margin. And the gains were not coming from college educated upper class white voters in Miami-Dade. There's not a lot of those, but those people got bluer. The gains came from Hispanics, they came from blacks, and they came, uh, I mean, it, it came especially from Hispanics. Um, Cuban-Americans, Venezuelan-Americans, Mexican-Americans, Puerto Rico-Americans, like, they zoomed to the right. And you saw the exact same thing in South Texas. Like, Hidalgo County, um, uh, the, the the Rio Grande Valley, um, the, the southern part of Texas, the, the, the metro area that everybody forgets exists in Texas because yeah. it's on the border with Mexico and it's just so far away from everything else. Those counties down there near the um, southern border of Texas used to just all be Democrat. In a state that was very Republican really? for a very long time, like Hidalgo County was just 60-something, 70-something percent Democrat routinely. And Trump almost won those places. There was like a – it was something like a 40-point shift on average by precinct-by-precinct precinct basis in those counties. In fact, there was um, one county, Zapata County. It's a rural county, 90 98 hispanic that had not voted republican in something like a hundred years and donald trump won it and this is on the rio grande uh border this this is like literally on the river um and the the shifts that took place in south texas were so monumental that there's a chance that all three of the congressional seats down there could vote republican this decade it's probably not going to happen this cycle but it by the end of this decade if the trends continue like there's a really good chance that all three of those seats will end up flipping, which is amazing because those seats were originally drawn to be Democrat vote sinks. Huh. And which means what? Uh, it basically just meant that when re when the Republican legislature drew the maps, they drew it to just pack as many Democrats as possible into those gotcha. districts to, to make it easier to win other districts. So they never envisioned that they would win these seats ever. And we just had that special election that happened a few months ago where a Republican flipped a seat that like had never voted for a Republican before in South wow. Texas. And so like that was another shift that the pollsters just totally missed. Like all these polling firms that showed like Texas is in play and Florida is going to vote blue just totally well, so dropped were, the ball. They were relying way too heavily on on racial dynamics. And, and to me, this kind of feels like Democrats drinking their own Kool-Aid. Right. They, they've been pushing this narrative for so long that, oh, Republicans are all, you know, white racists that hate people that don't look like them. But then when Democrats started getting power in some of these areas, all of a sudden they were pushing policies that were adversely affecting minority communities. What, what a shocker. Um, we saw this in Virginia during the Yunkin race. 
Uh, a big part of the reason why Yunkin won is because you had a lot of parents to include a lot of minority parents coming over and voting for Yunkin over what was going on within schools and what was going on with respect to crime. Yeah. Um, So I I thought that was interesting. But on the education front, too, this is one where it's interesting. Whenever we point this out that, you know, college educated is now more and more overwhelmingly voting Democrat, Um, especially like postgraduate degrees, master, like if, if four year, it, it's, it leans Democrat pretty significantly, but more than a four year. And, and it's, it's guaranteed, basically. It's almost exclusive. Well, the it's, left it's, will- it's almost exclusive. On, sorry, I just want to finish this. It's almost exclusive. And their claim is, is like, well, yeah, all the smart people vote for us. Exactly. That's what but, but what's interesting about this is that as you look, as you look at the economic viability of a college degree, right? As you look at the number of people that have you know, massive college debt Great and can't point. get a job. As you look at all of that, okay, you've got a bunch of people, Democrats tried to subsidize as many people going to college as possible, right? Universities came up with all kinds of garbage, yep. you know, economically worthless degrees. You have a significantly higher percentage of the population now with massive college debt yep. who are unemployable. And the Democrats are coming around going, we think we should forgive all of your student loans. And, and so it, it, it's interesting to me how this claim that, oh, it's because we got all the smart people. No, it, it's because you created a crisis within higher education. You created perverse incentives within it. And now you have millions of people with massive amounts of college debt. And you're saying, hey, we're the ones that are going to bail you out. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that the increase in classes that have studies in the title, right? Mm-hmm. Like gender that's, studies. That, that's you where know, it is. All this other, like, it is, they were nothing, they weren't educating you on something. Again, it was going to make you economically viable. You got a worthless degree in you know, indoctrination. So so the Democrats are going to buy their votes with smarter people's money because if they made a wise decision, this wouldn't be an issue. Yeah. I I mean, I I think that we were putting the cart before the horse a little bit there. I think that the Democrat position on like, you know, forgiving student loans is a, is a consequence of the fact that they now know that they are the party of, of college indoctrinated voters. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that's the reason that college indoctrinated voters are voting Democrat, because as I just said, they're indoctrinated. Well, it, 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 what's happened is, is that universities have basically become institutions that simply indoctrinate their individuals into, I'll be honest, like, like just straight up Marxism in many respects. Universe, I mean, I'm not too far removed from the college system myself, and I can't tell you a single thing of value that I feel like that I gained from my years in, in higher ed at all. I, like, I, I, I feel like that I wasted my time, quite frankly, and I have a degree. And if it weren't for the fact that I went into the university system already committed to knowing what I believed and and right. and I was I went into the university system as a conservative. I wasn't an activist. I left as an activist. I feel like that it was like one of Newton's laws took, you know, took effect on me. For every you action, an, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You but, were an anomaly as well because yes. your your family close family members are you have one who's not conservative. Yes. Who's in the education system my, or higher yeah, education system, right? But it, 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 yes. And, and again, like there's, there's so much like evidence out there that suggests that people who go to universities and get degrees will end up becoming indoctrinated into believing well, leftist. I mean, Thomas Sowell talks about this, how, how in academia, you, you know, it, it, it's, 
it, it's it's being run by people who, what was the line? He Thomas Sowell had a line about how for the last X number of years or decades, we've been replacing what works with what sounds good. Yeah, and, and mm-hmm. his book, Intellectuals in Society, really goes into this whole concept of, you know, how do you define an intellectual? Because people were accused, he's like, well, you're an intellectual, or, you know, why, are you anti-intellectual? He goes, he goes, I'm just, he goes, I'm defining intellectuals as someone who's, you know, primary market for what they do is ideas, but they don't necessarily pay a cost for those ideas being wrong. And and the example he uses is that um, you, you can you can teach, you know, some sort of wild social, economic, or political theory within the university system. And if it actually gets, you know, applied in real life and, and leads to disastrous consequences, you pay no penalty for that. An architect that builds a building with a crappy foundation and it falls and it kills everybody in the building is not only out of the job, they might be in prison. And so that's what he was talking about. And he has that quote that, you know, one of the dumbest ways to make decisions is by putting them in the hands of people that pay no price for being wrong. And that was one of the things he was talking about kind of intellectuals within the university system is that they're, they're in this environment where not only do they not pay a price for being wrong in many cases, it's the surest way to get tenure. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so they, they live in this protected world and then they, they push these theories and ideologies. And this is something that's also, I think, important because we keep hearing this repeated line over and over and over again, whether we talk about medicine, whether we talk about the economy, whether we talk about um, education. I hear this all the time from like, oh, are you an expert? Oh, are you an economist? Oh, do you have a teaching degree? Oh, do you have, oh, are, are you a scientist? Yeah, because the experts have just led us so well the last oh, two and, years. Well, and that's not only that, but it's like, okay, let me get this straight. So you've basically taken over the institutions which provide the credentials that you're relying on to classify someone as an expert. And no matter how many times they get it wrong, it doesn't matter because they have the credential, right? It, Paul Krugman is, has a Nobel Prize. Credentialed expert who it, also predicted that the internet would have no bigger impact on humanity than the fax machine. Yeah, yeah. Wow. No, no greater economic impact than, than the go, fax going machine. Going back to higher education real quick, I think you made a fascinating point because I think over the last two to three years, the interest in higher education from people graduating high school has declined. Oh, substantially. And yeah. the, the support for higher education being necessary to make a good living has declined as well. And so you were saying that those who have four-year degrees, master's degrees, doctorate, the likelihood that they vote Democrat increases significantly. And I just, I want to propose this question. Do we think that there will be less left-leaning voters when we have less people going seeking a higher ed education. So that will be a natural, and I'm sure that Nick would agree with this, that that will be, is as university enrollment rates continue to decline, and they are declining. Right. Like COVID started this because, but you know, the thing is, is that it's not just COVID. It's also the fact that, that college tuition and college fees in general have gone up something like so something like eight times right. the rate of inflation. Well, and and I think that private corporations and businesses have started to place less emphasis mm-hmm. on the degree or credentials. Which is why you increasingly see in certain state legislatures this movement towards trying to force credentialing to require people to get degrees. I think it's like in D.C., they're trying to um, force um, like, like, like really simple – um, you know, like jobs that have never needed any sort right. of degree. They're, they're like, like they're, they're trying to basically regulate entire industries into you must get credentialed in X because quite frankly, the, the left now knows that because they own higher education 
anything that we can do to force more people into that system is going to increase our voting base. Right. Well, and, and think about this too. And, and again, I want to I want to make sure we're tracking this all sure. back to polling numbers, why mm-hmm. the polling numbers have been wrong, right. how we should look at polling numbers in the future, um, and and how we should actually look at what's going on to be able to accurately predict election outcomes. But to that point, yes, more and more people that are, I'm not going to, the people that I wanted to go to college because I thought it was going to make me more economically viable. Because that was the rule. Like growing up, I'm 42. Growing up, I had it hammered into me by my parent. Mm-hmm. You got to get a degree. You got to get a degree. And, and the way that they looked at that was most of the jobs out there, most of the people that were making more money or making significantly more money had a college degree. Now, to some degree, you can you can account for things like architects, lawyers, you know, doctors sure. and stuff like that. These These had certain credentialing requirements that only the university could convey, right? You couldn't get them somewhere else. Um, and, and so it was it was superficially logical to believe that college degree equals higher income. That's not true. A college degree within a particular in-demand field can provide you opportunities that other that not having that degree would right. would you know fail to provide you. But you still have to perform once you're there. so there's so there's two things here. One, it's, it's the colleges looking at their degree programs and matching it up with where their requirements are actually in the economy. And then two, the education has to actually convey more than just a credential. Right. The problem is, is that as, as the, the feds started just taking over college loans and started just throwing people into college, you got more and more classes that did not convey any sort of economic advantage within the economy. And then you had other uh, areas where it might have at one point but they had watered everything down so right. much because now you have to have a petting zoo before you take a test in order to deal with the PTSD associated with the last election cycle or yeah. how difficult midterms are to where they're now producing people that even when they have the credential, the credential doesn't actually mean they right. can effectively and, do it in the marketplace. And I don't even think most of the people in my generation going to college, I, I think the way they approached it is they wanted to get the degree so that they would be equipped with the necessary knowledge to perform within an industry Yeah, and were severely disappointed upon graduation. Yeah. So so if you if you take all that into account, the, the reason why when you look at point right now, and, and again, Christian's, Christian's model has actually been very good on this, um, it, it really takes a hard look at the the number of you know degrees, the type of degree and right. things like that within a particular area because it's become a, a very significant predictor of voter activity and it, and it shouldn't be a surprise when you look at everything from the indoctrination component to the college debt component, um, et, et cetera. Now, another one I want you to go over with us a little bit because this is something that will surprise people. I wanted you to briefly, I mean, we talked about the polls and how they could be wrong, but I mean, it looks like Cheney is at 28% in the latest poll, which is not uh, not good for her with a 29% spread, 29 point spread. But can you guys quickly go over, uh, a lot of people, they look at Liz Cheney and they just think, oh, she hates Donald Trump and that's why we hate her kind of thing. I'd love for you guys to explain why we should dislike <laughs> her as uh, yeah, so in that position, uh, aside from her dislike of Trump. So most people have beef with Liz Cheney because, you know, she voted for impeachment and she ended up being like this kind of like token Republican that the Democrats would use to, you know, bash other Republicans. By the way, this is something that you've seen increasingly where the GOP base is increasingly and rightfully so, intolerant of Republicans that simply serve as a tool for Democrats to attack other Republicans with. 
they they view those people as traitors and and rightfully so because democrats will trot out somebody like liz cheney and say see this is the good republican why can't you be like liz cheney because if we were all like Liz Cheney, you'd still say we're all racist, Nazi, fascist, bigots, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm old enough to remember what they said about Mitt Romney in 2012, about yeah. how he gives people cancer and he's he's the scum of the earth. And it doesn't matter what we say or do, the left is going to hate us anyway. So why would we compromise our principles? And that's the biggest reason that, that people should be voting against Liz Cheney in this primary is because Liz Cheney has dedicated herself to trying to throw some of the most conservative members of the House of Representatives out of office. I remember that Liz Cheney threw her support behind Thomas Massey's primary challenger in 2020 and tried to get him defeated. And Thomas Massey is, is a conservative champion. He is one of the most conservative people in the House. And he, I don't just mean conservative in terms of like defending the status quo. Like, no, no, Thomas Massey understands it from like a philosophical and economic point of view. He was one of the only people, one of the only people in the entirety of the US Congress to stand up and oppose the big government spending spree mm -hmm. that we went through in March 2020 when apparently it looked like the world was ending and the response to that was let's print $5 trillion and inject it into the economy. And he knew, he was one of the only people that stood up and said this is going to create an inflationary crisis unlike anything you've ever seen in your lifetimes. And he was right. And I remember people saying that people accusing Massey of wanting people to die because he wanted them to, to take recorded votes on the floor of the House in March 2020. And he wanted to oppose some of the massive spending bills. And Liz Cheney went out there and donated to his left-wing primary challenger to oh, wow. try to defeat him in the Republican primary. And that's the reason that she needs to go. Isn't just because Democrats use her as a prop to attack other Republicans. That's a good enough reason. But but the big reason is because she, she opposes conservative people that are trying to do the right thing in Congress. That's a great point. Um, I sent, um, I, I sent a, a link to a tweet that I um, worked up uh, back in March um, that I'd love for you to pull um, up. Now. To, to pull up. Um, and this really gets to the heart of the political geography of what we were talking about, especially when it comes to things like college degrees and the trajectory that we're going with election outcomes. Okay, so, so this is a tweet that I sent in March, and I said, these precincts in the Richmond metro area voted more for Donald Trump in 2016 than they did for Glenn Youngkin in 2021. And then I go on to say, suburban shift is real, even if the trend line isn't always moving in one direction. So what do I mean by that? So Trump lost Virginia in 2016 by about five points or so. Youngkin won Virginia in 2021. So that's a big shift. That's at least a seven-point shift because Youngkin right. won by two points. Trump lost by five in 2016. So that's a seven-point shift. Despite the fact that Youngkin did seven points better in Virginia than Donald Trump did in 2016, he did worse in every single one of these precincts that shaded in red. This is the Richmond metropolitan area. The centerpiece here, the circle, is the city of Richmond itself. The earmuff-shaped county, that's Henrico. The bigger county below that is Chesterfield. This is almost 100% urban or suburban metropolitan okay. area. Youngkin somehow did worse in the Richmond metro area than Donald Trump did at the same time that he was winning Virginia while Trump was losing Virginia. Interesting. The reason why is because these areas are ancestrally Republican, high-density suburban areas with a large concentration of white college-educated voters, the exact type of demographic that is zooming to the left right now and abandoning the Republican Party in droves. But notice how the inner city of Richmond did not get bluer. Mm -hmm. I should have used the wrong – I used the wrong color. I should have colored this blue. 
to reflect the fact that it got bluer. But everything that's white on this map, Yunkin did better than Trump on. Everything that's red on this map, Trump did better than Yunkin on, which just blows your mind that Trump did better than Yunkin in like Tuckahoe, like the richest part of Henrico County, like the west end of Henrico there, northwest end of, of Chesterfield. That is all like ancestral Republican land. Like 20 years ago, you were getting like 70% of the vote as a Republican. And Democrats are starting to win those precincts now. What about Glenn? In theory, Glenn Youngkin should be like their type of guy. Mm -hmm. It makes sense for them to not have liked Trump because they were all, again, these like suburban, rich, white, you know, college educated voters. So like theoretically, Youngkin should have done better with these voters than Trump. But the exact opposite happened. And the reason why is because this trend line is just carrying forward. It doesn't necessarily matter if we nominate you know, one type of candidate over the other, like these type of voters are just abandoning the Republican Party. But at the same time that they're abandoning the Republican Party, we're winning these voters by by bigger the ones shaded margins. in white, the ones shaded in white. OK, and, and the ones shaded in white here on the outskirts outside of the red circle. Those are rural voters on the inside of the red circle. Those are inner city voters in the Richmond metro area. So so let me. OK, so the important thing to take away here, and this kind of goes back to the the things we've covered so far uh, is that one, you know, we're, we're it, polling used to be predicted based off primarily based off of like race. Then we started to see education play a, a far higher role. And then we started to see a shift in race. And this is, I mean, this whole map that you're showing right now is, is kind of a demonstration of this. It's actually suburban areas, which were in large part seen as Republican enclaves, which are becoming more and more blue mm -hmm. and the inner city areas are actually becoming more red. Now, Put this in perspective, in the suburban areas, what we're talking about is something that used to be like 60%. You know, Republican now being 50-50. are now 50-50. Mm -hmm. You know, inner city areas, which used to be 95% Democrat, are now like 85% Democrat. Yes. And then the rural areas are like 60-70% Republican. So you're, you're seeing this shift from, you know, again, people have this idea that density equals Democrat. And that, that's still largely true. That still plays out. However, the shift that you're seeing taking place is that a lot of the rich, white, college-educated liberals live in the suburbs. The inner city, a lot of the inner city voters are basically getting fed up and sick with what's going on within their cities and not necessarily trusting the people they've trusted for the last 50 years to do something about it. And then your rural people just kind of like typically become yes. more and more conservative. So I... I actually have a term to describe this. I, I jokingly call it donut theory. And the idea is, is that rural areas in inner cities are getting redder and suburbs are getting bluer. And therefore, it creates a donut, a ring shape around a metropolitan area. This is from the New York Times. This is their 2020 election map. The reason that some of these states are blank is because, unfortunately, Virginia, we didn't count them by precinct. So it's hard for you to get the actual results. But many other states, we did. If you press the button over there, this has changed. From, so what we're currently seeing is the results. This is th this is a map showing of what, 2020. Happened, what of happened 2020. In 2020. If you press the button change from 2016, this is the shift. Now let's zoom into a few places. I want to I want to show you in detail what this actually looks like. Um, let, let's go down to um to uh, the Texas area. So zoom into Houston. Give me uh, show show me Houston. There's Houston down there. So so just give let's center it on the screen, and I'll show you what happened here. Okay, so zoom in a little bit more. I want to. So here's the shift map. That's crazy. Between 2016 and 2020. Now go over to the 2020 results. Let's go back and see what the results looked like. Look at that. 
So this is what actually happened. This is the results. You can see the inner city of Houston, deep blue, deep yeah. blue. The suburbs of Houston, this is Harris County. Harris County voted for, for Biden, but not by a landslide. It was actually relatively close. And you can see, you can see the suburbs of Houston. As soon as you get out of the inner city, it starts getting purple. Or, or in this color scheme, it starts becoming less blue, and then it gets light pink, and then and then you get into the rural areas, and it's very, very red, right? So this is the results map of what yeah. happened. Now go back to the change from 2016. And this is what happened in this 2016. This is the shift. Yeah, this is the shift from 2016. So that's the crazy part is that, and, and again, the way to, if you're listening to this, the way to envision this is imagine all of the bluer areas are still blue with respect to the results. But if you're looking at the shift, it was the inner city precincts that got more Republican and it was the suburban areas that wow. got more Democrat. Yeah. And nobody expected that. In fact, 2020 was the first election since I believe the 1980s where geographic polarization decreased because places that used to be very Republican got more Democrat and places that used to be very Democrat got more Republican. And so therefore the geographic polarization, which was very correlated with racial polarization, decreased. And- if you actually hover over some of these precincts, zoom into any of those super deep red uh, colored precincts. That's the shift. 27, 27 point, point shift point in shift. one election. It went from 70 to 28. This precinct here in inner city Houston voted 70% for Hillary Clinton in 2016 and only 27% for Donald Trump. Donald Trump got 41% of the vote and Joe Biden only won it with 58 to 41. That's That's amazing. And then you get into like some of the suburban ones and, and it was like the exact opposite. Like, I, but again, any 44 point shift, Trump got zero, zero votes, votes in this, this precinct, precinct and he got 22% after getting not a single vote in that precinct. Um, yeah. And, and so this is what I call the, the donut effect. If you scroll out, you can see the donut itself, the inner part of the donut, the red ring and the, or, or the red center, and then you've got this blue ring around it. That blue ring is the suburbs of Houston that got significantly bluer. And the inner part of the donut is inner city Houston that got significantly redder. You can find another example of this in the Rio Grande Valley. If you actually go down to uh, Brownsville or Hidalgo to the south of Houston, you'll see the exact same shift. It, it's going to start getting really red in a second for you. Keep going. That's Corpus Christi down there. If you keep going, you'll get to the Mexican border in a second. That's Hidalgo. Now look at the results. Blue, mild blue. But then when you look at the shift, just hover oh over anything. Oh my god. Hover over anything. This is nuts. 20 point, 15 point, 38 point shift, 42 point shift, 40 point shift, 45. I think I found a 50 point shift in there once when I was playing around with this map. This is incredible. Yeah, this, well this is the part that I don't think that again the modern polling had a hard time predicting things like Absolutely this. Absolutely missed a 40 point shift. Yeah. In, in, one, in some of these precincts. Yeah. I mean, these are precincts that voted 75-25 for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump got 43-44% of the vote in. He didn't win. If you look at the map, he won barely any of these precincts. But these all used to be deep, deep, deep blue. Yeah. And every single one of them is now like like five to 10 points. Well, and, you're, and you're now starting to see that reflected in congressional races and other races is that Again, areas the Democrats used to be able to completely rely, like not even have to knock a door, make a phone mm -hmm. call, do anything. There's a shift taking place. And, and I think it makes sense when you look at, especially what happened during 2020, a lot of these cities, a lot of these areas, and then when we're talking about border towns, there's obviously issues there with, with um, border and immigration, illegal immigration. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if, if you're someone that, <clears throat> let's say you were, 
you know, you're someone that immigrated to the United States, first generation immigrant, you get over here, the Democrats seem to be nice and they keep telling you the Republicans are mean and bad and they hate you because you look different. And they're racist. Yeah, and they're racist know. and the whole deal. And, and look, you're not really involved in politics. You just want to run your, your small business. You want to, And then all of a sudden, crowds come through and burn your small business to the ground not because of anything you did, but because of justice. And the border is completely undefended. Right, yeah. And then and now you're you're looking at a situation where all of a sudden the Republicans are the one going, Hey, this shouldn't be happening. We should be, you know, protecting these people and making sure that, you know, their businesses aren't getting burned down or looted. And and oh, by the way, you shouldn't be, you know, creating laws like they did in Virginia, which we just got rid of this year now that we took the House and the governorship back, that that deliberately discriminate against Asian Americans within the school system. Right. I think a lot of those narratives are, are going by the wayside. And, and the one Democrat response that you get every single time you talk about this is, well, if you don't agree with us, it must be because you're a bigot or you're a racist. Yeah. And, and that you, doesn't work. Well, and, and you always, and who do you, like half the time, the people that you see making those comments are rich, white, college, college educated, educated, suburban mm-hmm. people, right? Talk, talking on behalf of, of the people living. We want to defund the police. Oh, but not in your neighborhood, right? You want to, you want to defund the police in Richmond. But you live in a suburb that will still get, you know, Chesterfield County Sheriff's Department there when you call them. Yeah. The people that have the hate has no home here signs <laughs> are the same people that think that we should let the border be wide open yeah. with no defense whatsoever. And the people living in McAllen, Texas, on the border are the ones that are bearing the brunt of this. And this is a 100% Hispanic community. Yeah. The, the, the Rio Grande Valley, there are... There aren't a whole lot of gringos down there. They're all white or or, sorry. They're all, there's no, there's no white people there. There's no racist Southern white people that live there. This is a hundred percent Hispanic community. And those people are in open revolt against the democratic party because the democratic party only cares about race-based issues. And if you voice any objection to what's going on on the Southern border there, you're a racist. Try telling that to a Hispanic business owner who has their store broken into every single day because there's no police presence down there and and that they're a racist if they think that we should have border security that doesn't work with those people because those people and and the thing is is that you see this in the polling too hispanic americans are patriotic hispanic americans are hardworking. hispanic americans think that if you that the american dream is possible hispanic americans share many of the things in common that 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 the left now thinks are, are racist yeah. Uh, components like hardworking and ingenuity, integrity. Like these are things now that under CRT, they now define them as white qualities and, yeah. and they're a negative thing. And Hispanic voters are now saying, first off, that's not a white quality because I believe in those things as yeah. well. And that doesn't make me a bad person. And for you to accuse me of being a racist because I think we should have border security or because I think we should enforce our laws and we shouldn't allow criminals to burn down our cities. I'm sorry, but that's not going to work with me. And the only response that the left has is if you agree, if you don't agree with me, you're a racist. How eventually that argument does not work when you're talking to a black or Asian or Hispanic person. I've got two more things to show you on this map. One is going to be the Austin area. If you scroll up just a little bit, you're going to get into San Antonio and a little bit higher. There's Austin. So let's scroll into Austin. So there's Austin. That's the change from 2016. There's the 2020 results. Deep blue. Deep blue. There is no donut in Austin. If you go to the change, there is no donut. Very little. The reason why is because Austin is attracting white college-educated Silicon Valley college-indoctrinated liberals. 
And so there is no, from California, there is no, no donut effect going on in Austin like you did see in Houston because Austin is just becoming a magnet to turn into a, a San Francisco in the middle of the desert, basically. So the donut theory does not exist everywhere. You know what's interesting? My whole concept of donut theory, if you actually did like a, a race based correlation to it, you would find that the strongest examples of donut theory, so to speak, take place in the least white parts of the country. The, the, the less white your city is, the more likely it went through this ring effect where the suburbs got bluer and the inner city got redder. The whiter the city is and the more college indoctrinated the city is, like Austin, mm -hmm. very white city, very college indoctrinated, the less likely, likely you're to see donut effect. It's just going to be a giant blue blob. There's not going to be any redding taking place. So the last place that I'm going to show you on this map is the Miami-Dade metro area in South Florida. So keep it on 2020 results. Go to 2020 results. I want to, I want to, you're going to be blown away when you see this. Scroll into South Florida. Keep it so that way we're, we're showing everything from uh, Miami all the way up to, to like West Palm Beach. So this is the whole South Florida metro area right now. This is, this is like 6 million people. It's the largest metro area in Florida, one of the largest in the entire country. 100% um, urbanized, suburbanized, extremely racially diverse. By every single metric you could think of, this would be like, this whole entire metro area would be like 70% Democrat. It meets all the criteria. It's, it's, it's on the coast. It's 100% urbanized, very, very uh, racially diverse region. This is the results from 2020. You can see the blue, the, the, the blue splotches where the inner cities, I, it, they're not really inner cities, but, but like the very dense urbanized right. parts, the built up parts of South Florida are. These are like the downtown areas of like Fort Lauderdale, Palm Beach, Miami, et cetera, et cetera. Now show the, the change from 2016. Wow. That's Miami-Dade County down there. Hialeah, Miami, Kendall. You also see the same thing up in Palm Beach County. If you scroll up a little, you'll see them. 24-point shift, 16-point shift. Some of these voted for Trump, by the way. Some of them flipped from blue to red in Palm Beach County. But the, sh the real shift, if you scroll down, you'll be able to pull up the whole of the Miami-Dade metro area. If, if you just move it south, that's Miami right there. There's, wow. there's almost not a single precinct in Miami-Dade that got bluer. 30-point shift, 23-point shift, 12-point well, okay. shift. And so, so here's my question. Right, we, we've already said that you know, the, the racial demographics that the pollsters used to rely upon don't seem to be working the way they used to. Yeah. The geographical components don't seem to be working the way they used to. The, the college education numbers don't. So they're playing catch-up on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Because, again, polling is not just them going in and, and calling a 1,000 random people. A good poll has a good cross-section of the country. Um, and, and you see one, like I'll, I'll pull up a, a poll here real quick just to look at the, the data here. But I was looking at one poll, and it was one of the only ones within Real Clear Politics that had the Democrats like at plus six for the upcoming midterms. I'm like, plus six? Like how in the heck are Is they? Is that the economist YouGov? Yes. yes. And, and, then you, and then you look at the actual numbers for how they get there, and, and it turns out that they've, they, they've way oversampled college education. They way oversampled. Um, and not just Democrats and independents, right? Because that's something that happens in a lot of polls. But then when you dig deeper into the numbers, you realize that they've they've oversampled the college education side, and that will that will drastically flip the numbers more than other types of oversampling within the polls. So here's my question: Based off of what you're seeing, mm -hmm. going into this next things where we get we got the polls coming up, you know, and it's flipping back and forth between you know. 
D plus six, R plus three, the overall spread and the RCP average, the real clear politics polling averages. They take all the major polls mm -hmm. over about the last month, you know, shows a Republicans at plus 0 0.1 in yeah. the generic ballot. Basically tied. Yeah. In the, in the generic ballot. Are they right? Are they wrong? Why or why not? So this is, oh man, this is like this for, you know, when uh, people go up to Jordan Peterson, they ask him, do you believe in God? Yeah. And then he always like complains, like, I don't like that question. Yeah. This is, this is my, do you believe in God question? <laughs> um, th th this is, I'm having a Jordan Peterson moment when people, well, you don't, you don't want to throw off your streak. There's a reason yeah. Yeah. Christian only I, gives his opinion when he's pretty darn <laughs> sure of it. So, so I have a friend, Izzy Knight, who always makes fun of me for, for thinking that Texas would flip blue. Because I missed the the the, the shift in, in racial polarization. Had that South Texas shift not taken place or the shift in, in downtown Houston not taken place, Texas would have gone blue. But because South Texas saw like a 40-point shift, that's what kept Texas in the red column. And I missed it. So I don't want to miss it again. I do think that the racial polarization is going to continue to disappear. But the reason that I was making that joke about how like this is like my type of question that I don't like to answer is because... There's so many what ifs right now. We're in uncharted waters right now. So historically, college educated voters were more likely to vote in midterms than non-college educated voters, which is why historically Republicans did well in midterms because the GOP base 10, 20 years ago were white college educated voters. And that's not our base now, just period. That's not our base. And so theoretically, that should actually make it more difficult for Republicans to, to do well in a midterm election because historically that was the Democrats' problem. The Democrats were not the party of college-educated white voters, and though their voters were less likely to show up in a midterm. And so they had a bigger problem where their turnout would just fall off a cliff in a midterm and they would, they would get trounced. And Republicans would lose a presidential election because it would be a high-turnout environment and we just didn't have the numbers, but we would always do well in the midterms. And now it seems like the reverse might be happening where our base might be a presidential base and not necessarily a midterm base. So that could be weighing down on us for a midterm election. But there's other components at play. For example, Biden's in the White House and he's deeply unpopular. The economy is in shambles right now. It looks like the stock market's having a rally, but the Fed's still raising interest rates and we're probably about to go into a recession if we're not already in one. And so that should all be weighing down on the Democrats. And so there's, there's these competing forces. It just depends on what you want to prioritize. Gun to my head, Republicans are going to take the House. There, there's almost no way that, that that Republicans don't take the House. If they don't take the House, it's a categorical failure on the part of the RNC and the House Republican Caucus and Congress. Like they, like heads deserve to roll, and people need to be fired if we don't pull this thing off. But in the Senate, it like 538's forecast. I mean, I can tell you, five five thirty eight thinks that like the Senate is going to go blue right now. Um, the Senate is currently fifty fifty. Right. Both parties have 50, 50. Well, technically, Democrats have 48, but they have two independents that caucus with them. They've got Angus King and Bernie Sanders. So it's 50 50. And then Kamala Harris breaks ties in, in order to give de Democrats a working majority in the Senate. Um, 538 thinks that Democrats will at, at least end up still with a 50 50 Senate, if not actually flip the Pennsylvania Senate seat and then hold hold even everywhere else, which would give them 51 seats. We better hope that doesn't happen because then theoretically they would have the votes to then eliminate the filibuster like permanently. And that could lead to some catastrophic problems down the road. We wouldn't see them immediately because Republicans would have the House. And so therefore it, it wouldn't really change anything day to day. But in the long term, if we get rid of the filibuster, yeah. the Senate just becomes a pure majoritarian chamber and and we start seeing some really radical legislation being passed 
um, which would be very, very dangerous. But my, I, what I think is going to happen is that I, I think that the polling is underestimating Republican chances right now because I think that polling, they got it wrong in 2016. They did not correct themselves. If anything, it got worse in 2020. And I, I have a feeling that the polling industry in the U.S. is just in shambles right now. They they don't know how to weigh polling whatsoever. And I think that part of it is because there's so many cultural institutions and pressures that are forcing people to be ashamed to admit that they hold conservative views. Right. There's so many people that feel ashamed to admit that they have not voted Democrat in every single election in their life and that they don't think that that, you know, we need to seize the means of production or whatever. <laughs> like there's people that feel bullied into just not talking about it. I mean, it, it, ironically enough, the polling shows that that when you break it down by like ideology, every single group in this country, except for committed leftists, except for very, very far left people think that that they're they're not comfortable sharing their views that they feel pressured to be to self-censor every single group in this country politically all across the spectrum except for the far left says that 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 there are intense pressures to make them self-censor what they mm -hmm. believe and the reason why is because the left dominates every single institution in this country when it comes to mass media they dominate academia they dominate hollywood they dominate uh, television. They dominate newspapers. They dominate the internet. They dominate big tech. And it's not surprising that that like all across the political spectrum, including people in the center and even center left, feel like that they 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 can't share their opinions or that that they would get punished to do right. so is because quite frankly they will get punished if they do so. Every single institution in this country is dominated by the left, and I don't just mean the center left or, or even the center. I mean like the far left, Hollywood, academia print media, TV, uh, Silicon Valley. It, it, it doesn't, I mean, Wall Street itself. I mean, Silicon Valley donated overwhelmingly to Joe Biden. Wall Street donated overwhelmingly to Joe Biden. All of the major institutions in this country are basically completely overrun with leftists at this point, which is also part of the reason that people are losing faith in these institutions yeah. because these institutions aren't impartial. These institutions are ideological and they're trying to force a narrative on people. And if you disagree, you're going to get silenced. You're going to get shunned or you're going to get banned. Well, right. And I think part of it, I think part of what really frustrates people about that is it, I, I think Americans actually have a fairly high tolerance for someone sharing a particular belief or, or you know, passionately advocating for a particular ideology. They have a very low tolerance for someone that pretends like they're not doing that right? and insists that you look at them as an objective analyst or journalist when it is so painfully obvious that you have an agenda. Again, if you have an agenda and you tell people have you, you have an agenda and you want to explain why you think that agenda is the proper one, there's, there's a high degree of tolerance for that in the United States. The moment you say, no, 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 I'm just an objective observer and this is just the way it is and, and you should think this way, that's when people start to say, I don't trust you. Like I, again, if I can trust you to be open about what your political beliefs are and express them in a way that's logical and makes sense, I'll listen. You might even, you, you can might have a change, great conversation. You yeah. can even change someone's mind on a particular policy. The moment you pretend that that's not what you are and, and you're essentially insulting both their intelligence and you're, you're making them feel like, well, if you don't agree with this way, it's not that you're, you're disagreeing with the liberal position or the progressive position. You're disagreeing with, with the normal position, mm -hmm. with the position that is just there as, as a manifestation of the analysis of facts. Garbage. Yeah. 
and and that has happened so much that I think people are are openly rebelling against it. it, now. it it's and to build off of what you said, and I, I'm going to wrap up the the answer to this with this. To build off of what Nick just said, it's not just this this like subtle push. It's also an overt push too, because I'm sorry, but you could you could intimidate me, you could bully me, you could shame me, you could try to publicly humiliate me, you can ban me from Twitter all you want. You you can do all those things. But you know what you you know what I still get at the end of the day? I still have the right to a secret ballot. Yeah. Where nobody has to know how I vote. And I I, I can play the game all day long and 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 you know tell people, oh yeah, I really don't like those evil, mean, greedy Republicans. Yeah, Democrats all the way. But then you know what? I get to walk into the voting booth and I get to vote my conscience. And and all of the intimidation tactics and the bullying, just straight up bullying from the left to try to tell people you're a bad person if you don't vote for us. You're a racist if you don't vote for us. You're an evil, greedy, mean, white, you know, scumbag if you don't vote for us. All of the bullying and intimidation that the left does through government and through the private sector doesn't matter at the end of the day because you can still walk into a voting booth and you can vote your conscience. And most people, the reason why Republican polling strength has been underestimated the last few election cycles is because at the end of the day, people have felt intimidated into not sharing their views, but they still get to share them on election day because nobody's around to right. look at them and judge them when they cast that ballot. Nobody knows who they voted for. And that's where I think you're, you're having in the UK, they call it the shy Tory effect. You get the exact same thing because the the Labor Party dominates their institutions as well, and and you're an evil person if you vote for the conservatives, and so therefore only nice, you know, generous, kind people, only well educated people, only morally good people vote for Labor, and if you're not those things, then you're an evil, greedy, horrible, racist Tory. But I mean, in the UK, a majority of people vote for the Tories, despite the fact that you're all called a racist if you vote for the Tories. Mm -hmm. You're all called an evil, greedy capitalist if you vote for the Tories. And it's called the shy Tory effect. I, I think you're getting the same thing. I think you're getting a shy conservative effect, a shy, shy Republican effect, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. Um, but but that is what I think is is ultimately at the heart of, of why polling got it so wrong in 2016 and 2020 was because you can intimidate people all you want, but people are going to vote the way that they want to vote. And and when you're not delivering results and you're in one of these places that got trashed in the summer of 2020 or, or yeah. you live in an environment where where you feel like things are just getting worse and worse and worse and you know that there's no way you can blame Republicans for it because Republicans haven't been running the state or local or, or city government in decades, there's only one person you can blame and it's the party that has the D next to their name. And for all the intimidation tactics... You can't change. Who, who are you going to believe? Also, your lying eyes. Like, of course, I'm going to believe my own lived experiences. And the people that live here, they had enough of the left. Mm -hmm. And there, there's no amount of big tech censorship or left wing indoctrination that's going to convince them otherwise. And so that's why I think that the polling is going to get it wrong again. Well, all right. Bottom line, oh, that was a that was a deep dive. You're not going to get anywhere else. And and honestly, especially too with the, the donut theory, I think there's something really to this. And and you really see it between looking at 2016 and 2020. I think it does a lot to explain why polling has been getting it wrong. Because again, some people look at this and be like, well, wait, that doesn't explain why pollers, pollsters get it wrong. They're still talking to the people, and those people are so okay. Again, a, a good poll is supposed to be an accurate reflection of the voting population as a whole, especially when you're when you're pulling a thousand people to essentially represent how you think a presidential election is going to go. If you oversample certain groups, 
because your old model said that that was an accurate reflection of, of a diverse opinion, then you're, you're getting it wrong. And they've been continually mm-hmm. getting it wrong. And I think we have some insight here on how we do a better job of getting it right, not to mention the fact some of the cultural pressure that may be actually dampening conservative participation in some of these polls. But nevertheless, you never take these things for granted. You never just assume that, oh, well, we're, we're doing well in the polls. We're going to be great. Because as Christian also pointed out, it's August. And between August and, and, you know, the first Tuesday in November, that's practically a political eternity with respect to the various things that could take mm-hmm. place, that could manifest, yeah. that could that could sway public opinion at the last yeah. minute. So if you do care about these things, make sure you're getting out there and making a good argument for the values that we believe in. And make sure that reflects not only just in who you vote for, but in also going out there and doing the hard work to make sure that those people win. Once again, thank you very much for Christian for giving us this in-depth analysis. We will be coming back before the election. We're a little bit closer. We have more data to analyze and we're going to force Christian to take us a deep dive and make predictions that we can either congratulate him on or nail him to the wall if he gets it wrong. (laughs) That'll probably be coming up sometime in late October. But anyways, thank you very much for joining us. Make sure you go onto our volley chat. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Let us know if you learned anything. Let us know if you have any questions for Christian that he might be able to answer. He wasn't able to get to here. And I, 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 I would love to 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 get your questions actually this time on volley. I haven't been super active on volley, but if you send me a question, um, you know, related to, to elections oh, and will modeling. Talk forever. And I, oh, yeah. I, 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 I will talk your head off about this. So please send those in. I'd love to have a conversation with people about this. All right. Sounds good. Well, you heard him, ladies and gentlemen. Now make sure he does it. Once again, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.